podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? I'm not too bad, thanks. How are you? I'm not too bad. I was briefly top of the league at the weekend, but, you know, Leeds United can't be trusted to do anything. And we will not be doing an American edition of AI Scouted because Jesse Marsh let us down. Uh, that is just what he did, and that is what he will likely continue to do any time we put expectation on him. However... However, Eddie Howe, it's all on you. And if you do win next weekend, Carl will do the entire show the following week in a Geordie accent. Um, we're here today to talk about Villarreal, though, Carl. <laughs> the Champions League semi-final second leg. Uh, we have a 2-0 lead, but... They took big precautions at the weekend to prepare themselves for this in a 2-1 losing effort to Villarreal. They basically rotated everybody other than Pau Torres and Danny Parejo from their starting eleven. They did. Um, we've seen people do this before, of course. And you know, you look at West Ham, it hasn't always worked out particularly well for everybody, but obviously they need a really, really big performance on Tuesday. So it made sense for them to do as much as they could. Quite interesting that they sort of followed the same sort of pattern that Jürgen has done some of the times as well, uh, in that you don't rest those players, or not all of them at least completely, but you just give them maybe the 25, 30 minutes, that sort of time frame, just to keep themselves sharp. Uh, with a bit of a midweek, oh, sorry, weekend in this case, run out so that they're ready for midweek. So people like um, uh, Juan Foyd and Estabini and Los Elso, they still came off the bench and played a reasonable chunk, most of them, but didn't have to put in the graph for the for the full match, obviously. What it did do, the result in losing to Alaves, apart from keeping Alaves's hopes of staying up alive, that was a, a complete given three points for them in that situation, wasn't it? Uh, but it kind of ends their own hopes of getting into the Europa League for next season. Um, they're basically now, because Betis won the Copa del Rey, they'll go into the uh, Europa League through that, obviously, which puts sixth, which is Real Sociedad at the minute. They'll go into the Europa League from the league performance, and then that's down to seventh for the Europa Conference League. So it's kind of all or nothing now for Villarreal. They're, they're, they are seventh at the minute, but they've only got a point on Athletic, four games to go. So it kind of looks like they will be either in the best competition if they win it or in the competition which is barely worthy of the name, certainly for the for the early part of the rounds for next season. So he's kind of left himself open to a bit of criticism, I think. Um, maybe you can say that it's 
worthwhile, you know, going for glory, going for a, another European final and all the rest of it. But a little bit of an indication maybe that it's, he's putting it at the cost of what might be next season. Yeah, I thought that as well. And then I looked at their fixtures and Athletic play Valencia home, Granada away, Osasuna home, and then Sevilla away as their last four. Whereas for Villarreal, it's really tough. So they get Sevilla home next, then Real Vallecano away, then Real Sociedad at home, and then Barcelona away. That's a really difficult run. That's what, three of the top six hmm. in your last four games. And Vallecano aren't bad at all, whereas the Athletic Club have, I would say, a far easier run-in. Yeah, yeah, they definitely have got the easier run. I mean, the only thing you could maybe say for Villarreal is that at least by the last couple of games, the league positions might be set. And even like the European places might be wrapped up beforehand. So they'd maybe be able to get fifth instead of sixth, but it's not going to make any difference for which competition they're in, obviously. So they might get away with it just because of that. But they're not yeah. in good form. They're not in good form in La Liga. I think they've won two of the last six now. And away from home, we don't need to go over it again, but we know what they, they tend to be and what they tend to do. So even that easier looking game is away against Vallecano. So... I don't think they're going to get that many more points across the rest of the season. So if they do end up finishing, let's say, eighth out of Europe altogether for next season, is it going to be looked upon as a, a little bit of a wasted opportunity or a little bit of a, not a failure as such, but a certainly not an outright success. I know that Champions League semi-final is an absolutely wonderful thing for them to be in, no, no question of that whatsoever. But it's got to be more than a one-year thing. You know, It's got to be a bit of a progression. And now... They face potentially not being in Europe at all unless they do spring a real shock turnaround here in midweek. Exactly. And the thing for them is, yes, this will be, of course, a successful season. You get to a Champions League semi-final. It has to be seen as a successful season. But that's a club that's dependent on European football to continue to um, hold on to their best players and be able to go out and get a couple more. I mean, they've been linked recently to Emmanuel Dennis. You'd imagine he'll cost somewhere in the 20 to 25 million range from Watford. I would have thought he would want to play European football next season. I would have thought as well that Villarreal would be looking for European football to boost the coffers in terms of maintaining the wage bill. Now, look, the one or two players will probably leave. I'd imagine this is Pau Torres' last season at the club. Uh, but we can get into that a bit later. Um, it, yeah, it, it does seem like Unai Emery has put the cart before the horse in some ways and focused in on the Champions League, which is understandable, but at the same time, you would have liked to have seen a bit more balance in his approach. As you said, the, the league form has not been good now for a little while. They do still have a big goal difference advantage over Athletic, so if if they manage to pick up only one point less, they should qualify for the Conference League, though that will be a, a large fall from grace after a year in the Champions League. Now, look, we played them last week. It was very, very comfortable for us. They didn't cause us any kind of problems. We probably should have scored a couple more goals. It took a big fluke 
for us to to get in the lead. Do you think Emery will look at that and say, well, if not for the fluke goal, we get out of there with a nil-nil draw and what I set out to do worked? Or do you think he'll have some regrets about how he set the team up at Anfield? Um, I don't think he will, to be honest. I think if any team comes to Anfield and only loses by one, that's that's all right for them, to be honest. This season, last season, last couple of years, you... In league terms, certainly in the Premier League, you probably don't accept necessarily, but you're not going to be overly disappointed if uh, your goal difference doesn't take a hammering, for example. In a, in a two-legged affair, slightly different. I, I imagine they would have wanted to keep it within one, if possible. But even within two, you've got to think that if you know you catch Liverpool on a bit of a slower day or your players have an absolute fantastic night out and the uh, the back end of the stadium, the atmosphere is really, really good. Or if you score the early goal or anything like that, anything can happen. Two goals is absolutely not insurmountable. That That's fine. So I don't think he'll have too many regrets other than, I don't know, maybe at times they could have maybe stuck a second player to to make those runs alongside Dan Juma. We saw Chukwesi barely touch the ball. You know, I know he was there as an outlet down the right-hand side and and in towards centre-forward when he had the opportunity, but he didn't have the opportunity. So maybe he would have looked for a bit better of an outlet. Uh, maybe I think it might have been a bit more worthwhile for them swapping him and Ocelso. So Ocelso was able to do a bit more hold-up work and then Chukwueze working back from that right flank, but then able to break forward from deep. Um, but I don't think that they'd be too disheartened by it when you compare a few of the previous matches at Anfield where you know United have come and it's in goal after goal put past them and plenty of other teams have had the same. I think they'll probably take their chances at, at a two-goal deficit. Uh, I don't buy anything about, you know, if the deflected goal hadn't happened, if the bit of fortune, Liverpool just would have kept going. You know, we, we scored two very, very quickly. Obviously, after a while, then we sort of took the foot off the gas a little bit and played a bit more controlled. But if we hadn't scored that first, we wouldn't have done that. We would have just kept pouring forward and they would have stayed defensive. And the longer you stay defensive, that's the point. Fortune is eventually going to go against you, whether by a moment of uh, misconcentration or a poor technical touch or a bad decision-making or whatever. The longer you have to do it, the more likelihood is that something's going to go wrong for you. That's the point of being defensive. That's that's the, the negative thing about it. If there wasn't a downside to it, everyone would just do it all the time. So do you think he's likely to do it again in this second leg? Will it be a case of let's keep it as tight as possible Let's try and hit them on the counter-attack. And if we can get one, then that might put some panic into them. Or are they going to have to open up a little bit more? Are they going to have to be a bit more expansive? Because if they are, well, my feeling on it will be that Liverpool will... Yes, I'd expect Villarreal to start quite quick, to be honest, and at least give it, you know, the five, six... seven minutes really on the front foot and aggressive and got the fans behind them in the first what, five ten minutes something like that where they had two or three attacks and then after that it was a lot of grittiness and Chelsea started to get a bit more possession didn't do anything with it which you would expect Liverpool to do better but I mean in that in terms of uh, Villarreal trying to get real momentum from the start of the game using the energy of the crowd and all that kind of thing so I'd expect them to start fast they are they are a different team at home anyway you know they're, they're a much much better side at home and you've got to look at their league form this season uh, their top four for uh, the format, the ceramic, whereas away from home, bottom half of the table. It's a huge, huge difference. 
they average less than one goal scored per game away from home. It's it's ludicrous, honestly. The difference between them is, is astonishing. And yet it's over two goals per game at home. So we already know that there'll be a difference in terms of uh, playing style and mentality. I don't expect that they'll go all out or anything like that, but I just think that they'll start fast, try and get themselves their early goal if possible, and that gives themselves a platform. Remember uh, against Barcelona before the second leg, and we were talking about you know three goals down and what's our approach got to be and all the rest of it, and I said at the time, you only need to be 1-0 up at halftime and you're on track. That's it. Yeah. Even though it's the three goals that you needed and four to, to go through, one at halftime leaves you on track because there's always more space, more opportunity, more energy, more uh, chance of goals in the second half. And this is exactly the same for them. If they do get 1-0 by half time, they're well on track. They'll think that that's an absolutely perfect 45 minutes for them. So they don't need to go all out by any stretch of the imagination. But I would expect them to be you know, a little bit more expansive, a little bit more uh, aggressive front foot, challenge it a little bit higher up the pitch, that kind of thing. They won't step too high because they still have the same centre-backs. You know, still going to be Pau Torres and, and Albiol, and neither of them yeah. are exactly rapid. And like you say, if they do step up and press quite high, Diaz alone, I think, would be eating them apart. I, he, he, I expect Diaz to start this one, let's put it that way. And Liverpool's forwards, whoever is playing, whether it's Jota and Salah and Mane, they're all quick enough to get past them if there's space in behind. They don't tend to have a ridiculously high starting line, and they'll drop quickly, and they'll still be very, very compact, but they do play a bit higher up pitch. Yeah, they, they're not a team that can afford to play a high line because, as you said, they don't have the, the pace at centre-back. So, the centre-backs will remain the same. I'm expecting the midfield pairing to remain the same, Parejo and Capoue. I expect Foyt and Astupanen to stay the full-backs. And Astupanen is mostly an attack-minded full-back. He's obviously reined that in quite a bit to to get himself into the team at Villarreal, having spent most of last season sitting on the bench watching. But what's what are we likely to see in those other four positions then, the two wide roles and the two front roles? Is he still going to go with a central midfielder in a wide role to bring the graft? Or do you think, is it a possibility that we see, you know, more natural wide players Chukwesi brought back into one of those roles, perhaps somebody else on the other side, maybe Pedraza, who came on at Anfield, to give them a bit more thrust and a bit more pace. I I think that definitely one of them will still be what we would normally term a central midfielder. It's a very, very narrow form midfield, isn't it? And that's what allows them to be really compact, what allows them to you know dominate spaces, not the ball as such, but certainly have control of where the game's played. So I would imagine... If Coquelin is not able to start, then Manu Trigueros comes in this time and maybe he plays from the left, let's say. that That's usually the side where they tuck in a little bit and allow Estebinian to go on the overlap at times. Um, I still think that it'll be Los Celso behind Dan Juma again in attack because not expected to be Gerard Moreno, at least from the start again. And then you have got a decision to make on the other side. I mean, it was quite interesting that with the changes that they'd made and everything, Chukwueze played the full 90 against Alavis at the weekend. Uh, most of the starters, let's say, certainly from the first leg who played in this one, they didn't play the full 90. So the only ones who you would look at from the weekend game as potentially being in the lineup is Trigueros and Chukwueze, and both of them played the full 90. So 
maybe one comes on and one starts, and then it leaves maybe Jeremy Pino free to play the other side if he's fit enough. Um, there is a bit of a decision to be made there. I don't think it'll be Bederatha ahead just because it's a little bit limiting in terms of his options to change it around later on. Uh, mm. If he wants to, you know, if he needs to lock down that side, well, you can't really do that by bringing on Chukwesi, can you, as, as well as you can with Bederatha. So, bit of a juggling act as to how quickly and how aggressive he wants to be right from the start, I suppose. But they have at least got a few options in the squad. I mean, I don't expect it to be that dissimilar from the first leg, but I would just say that maybe a couple of the changes like uh, Chukwesi and Los Elos are swapping their roles and maybe Trigueros plays instead of Coquelin then. So what is the latest on Gerard Moreno and Jeremy Pino? Those two are two of their better attacking players. Moreno might be their best attacking player. And obviously Jeremy Pino's a, a very exciting wide player who could cause us some problems. Is there is there recent updates on them? Are they expected to make the bench? Are they, is there possibility that either of them could start? Uh, no, I wouldn't expect either of them to start, to be honest, unless there's like a miraculous recovery. Um, Moreno, is, he was said to be quite close before the first leg, but then hasn't been involved in, obviously, either of the games. So I, I wouldn't say that it's likely he will be back to start at all. Um, maybe not even to be on the bench, to be honest. Jeremy Bino, they haven't really said anything about either way, to be perfectly honest. So I don't even know what his injury is at this point. Yeah, so it does limit their options a little bit that way because you've basically got Dan Juma, you've got Dyer, um, you've got Chuck Wazy. They're the only three fully fit attacking players outside of Paco. And Paco has, as his career, he's always just been better off the bench. It's just whatever it is, he, he works better coming off the bench. Uh, he hasn't had a particularly good season. He's also had a couple of niggles here and there. But yeah, it, it it is a little bit limiting for Unai Emery if he if he is missing those two, or if they're not if they're not fit enough to play a full role in the game. Uh, what about Liverpool then? So obviously we played at the weekend, and again, like with Emery, Klopp rotated heavily. Now Klopp is calling on a better caliber of player than than Unai is. So Liverpool went to Newcastle and got the one nil victory. There was more changes than I thought there was going to be. What did you make of the team? And what did you make of the game? Because we haven't spoken about it. Um, I, I think we played well for the most part, to be honest. I think most of it was a really good, really controlled performance. Uh, obviously, the finishing is probably exempt from that. But considering the number of chances that we created where normally you would think that we'd score that goal, or we'd score that goal, we'd probably score two of the seven or so that we had anyway. I think it was pretty decent. Um most of the changes, I think, really played their part. Uh, Joe Gomez, very, very solid. I think the first cross he put in was rubbish, right? really wayward. And I was a bit surprised because like the last time he played right back, he put in three or four really, really good crosses. But then he hasn't played for a while. So you think maybe we'll see how it goes. And then the next three were absolutely pinpoint. They were brilliant. One right into the dangerous sort of six-yard area, which nobody ran onto. There was that square ball, which he sort of cut back across the penalty area and another one later on. So he was very, very good all round. I wondered what you made of James Milner because, like you said, we haven't um, spoken about it. But I thought Milner was, I'm going to say the full sentence here so you don't go running away with angriness when I say it. I thought he was good. And we're referencing this against James Milner's performance levels in general. I think he was 
relatively of the standard of a, a normal third midfielder for Liverpool, um, whether that's you know Henderson sometimes or Jones sometimes or whatever. He was uh, a little erratic sometimes with some of the passing because you know, it's James Milner, it's not Thiago. So you're going to have to accept some things go with it. But in general, uh, positions that he picked up with the recovery runs that he made, a few other bits, I thought he was pretty decent enough, to be honest. Yeah, no, I, I actually agree. I, I think he was. Uh, he was of the standard of, you know, what's been Henderson's better games this season, that sort of 7 out of 10 rate. He was good on the ball. Like you said, there was a couple of erratic passes. He was good off the ball until he got tired. And with Milner now, when he gets tired and he's asked to run more than, you know, five, six yards at a time, he starts to look like he's about to fall over. Um, Klopp left him on for longer than, than I thought was necessary, but obviously just wanted to get as many minutes as he could out of him. No, he he did. He had, he had a, an absolutely fine game. There was no issue with him. And obviously, it was his tackle that um, began the sequence of, of our goal. Like you, I thought we should have won more comfortably. I thought we missed some big chances. I thought some of the decision-making in the final third was questionable. I thought players got a little bit selfish at times and didn't get their heads up to see what the better options were. Um, speaking to a couple of Newcastle fans since the game, they all agree that Liverpool were just comfortably better than their team and showed just how far they have to go, considering it was not not a second-string Liverpool team, but a heavily rotated Liverpool team. Um, Gomez, I'm glad you highlighted him. I, I thought he was excellent. I thought him and Naby were the two standout players for Liverpool. I thought both of them had really, really good showings. Yeah, I thought Cates was best player on the pitch by quite some distance, to be honest. Mm. Uh, on and off the ball, really good positional play, excellent number of times he's cut out the pass or been in the way of the pass they want to make, then been the one to lead the counter press, then be the one to get into the space after someone else has made the challenge. Just sensational overall. Obviously, the goal is most important, and I think that the big thing to highlight there, we I think we pretty much mentioned Dubravka in the scouter before the Newcastle match that he'd been in ridiculous shot stopping form recently. Well, he did the right thing because he took him out of the equation completely by just going around him. So there was no chance of saving that shot. Uh, everybody else decided, we'll let Dubravka keep his form going. Um, I think biggest culprit of the, the second half misses, at least, was probably that Jota sort of fierce volley straight at him sort of thing. But, mm. you know, Mane should have scored the side foot of one. Diaz had at least one chance where he could have put it across goal and went near post. Sal had a, a late one-on-one, which you can kind of write off as well because he was just off the pitch uh, sorry just on the pitch a, a few questionable decisions like you say I thought Fabinho when he came on looked like he'd had 17 pints during the first half to be perfectly honest um, so hopefully that's just a, a one-off again that he just has once in a while and then that's fine for another three months he's really good again um, but yeah no complaints overall we were comfortable in terms of possession and play I think the performance level was very very high considering the number of rotations and uh, did a piece just after the game, actually, where I spoke about that's kind of the point of what Klopp's done, isn't it? It's keeping everybody, even those on the fringes, really involved and really integrated and not just ready to perform, but obviously wanting to. You know, people like Milner and Gomez, you, you expect Milner to have the good, uh, uh, what do you call it, attitude, obviously. But people like Gomez, I think it, this year must have been like quite difficult for him at times because he's played really well the majority of times he's played. But A, hasn't been that many 
occasions overall, and B, has often been at right back again out of his preferred role. So to have him as well as he has done and people to come off the bench and play their role as well, I, I think, again, it speaks volumes of the work that Klopp and the rest of the coaches are doing. Yeah, I mean, Go- Gomez has been unfortunate in that Trent is having an absolutely incredible season. Matip has stayed fit all year and is having a good season. And Ibu Kanate is having a very good season. So even though Joe has come in and done very well, those ahead of him are playing so well that he, he can't take their spots. I also do wonder with Joe, when he had the injury, because Marty and Sai talked about this on Fatigue Index when he had the injury, about what a long road back it is from that particular injury, a patella tendon rupture, and the surgery is just horrendous for it. And that it's not just, you know, once you're back, you're back. It's very much of you get back and then you're looking at about another year before you're really back, before you're capable of playing regular football at the level you were at perhaps before you got hurt and even even at that it's a very small percentile that actually get back to the prior level and Joe looks to have gotten back that now we wouldn't know until we saw him regularly but all signs are that Joe Gomez is is back to the elite level he was at before the injury but I do just wonder if you know as they were bringing him back and he was going through his rehab and that if maybe it was said to him, look, this is sort of a two-year injury. So when you come back, you're going to be brought back very, very slowly because we need to make sure that that knee is is right for the long term because you're 24 years of age. And we want to make sure that you can still be playing when you're 34 years of age, that you're not going to just you know, end up redoing the injury or suffering other injuries that can be connected to that injury. And maybe that's what's, I don't know if pacified is the right word, but that's what's kept Joe in the right mindset that, yeah, I'm only a squad player, but that's a now thing, not not an always thing. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, like, it feels recently, obviously, he's had a little bit more involvement, but minutes-wise across the entire season, up until the weekend, he'd actually played less than Taki Minamino. I mean, that that's not a lot of game time. You know, Milner has played more than him. Diaz, who only arrived a couple of months ago, has played comfortably more than him. So I think one one good piece of management is that we've had the odd occasion where Klopp has brought him on, even if it's just for like the last four, five, six minutes, nine minutes of a game, something like that. We've seen that you know several times scattered throughout the, the Premier League and Champions League campaign. So that probably helps keep him you know, involved and thinking, I am still playing a part in his plans, not necessarily in the team, but in the plans. You know, if if you're the one coming off the bench to help see out a game that you're only a goal ahead in, that kind of thing, it probably is a bit of a boost to think, all right, I'm on the bench and it's a long road ahead still, but I'm still there. I'm still, even though I'm not fully fit, I'm in his plans. I'm in his ideas. He's still counts and long. It is we've been a, a difficult run, um, but hopefully all the all the cup games that he's played in, the fact that we've gone so deep in every single competition, mm. that obviously plays a part as well. Um, 
didn't play in the in the League Cup final, which fine, okay, we needed to make decisions, and that's that's to win a trophy in that, and it does show that he was, you know, comfortably fourth choice centre back at that point. But there's a lot of there's a lot of ground still to cover this season, and then you know, who knows what happens in the summer? It only takes we've seen it before a load of times with Gomez and with his position and with other people as well in the team. It only takes one injury, one unexpected absence for a month, and your opportunity might be there. And if that comes. If he does stay and it comes quite early on next season, then you know, maybe at that point his recovery is far enough along that he can play a more regular role. That would be the hope. I mean, when you see him, you you know you think of Joe Gomez, and your immediate thought is central defender, and he's I think he's England's best central defender. I think he starts for every team in the league other than ourselves, obviously, and and City. And you think this is an elite level centre back, and then you see him go to right back. And normally, if a if a centre back goes to right back, it's a little bit clunky. You know, they they're not comfortable there. But he is comfortable there, and you forget what a high technical level he has. Like his first touch, his ability to carry the ball, his passing. You mentioned his crossing earlier on. They're all of a really high level. And if we weren't fortunate enough to have a player as good as Trent, you could actually imagine Joe being an absolutely elite level right back if he played there every single week and that was his role and he just locked in on that. He's just unfortunate in that we have Trent, who's the best right back in the world. We have Matip, we have Kanate, and of course we have Virgil. And... People can and will argue that he might be better than one or two of the centre-back. Well, he might be better than Matip or Ibu. There's no argument with Virgil, but he's just he's very unfortunate that he happens to be at a club where there are outstanding players in the positions that he can play. Yeah, I mean, partly unfortunate that he got the injury in the first place, of course, and that's probably what led to us signing Kanate this year. Whether he would have done or not, I'm not sure, because... We wouldn't have been down to, you know, the Nat, Fabinho, Henderson, Williams centre-back partnership of last season. So whether that made it that we had to and we brought in Kabak and all the rest of that nonsense that we went through last January, you know, if we'd had Gomez through all of that and he'd have been basically holding it all together, he might have just solidified himself as as the the absolute partner for Van Dijk this season and beyond, you know. Mm. He'd done it before. He'd been out injured before, come back and taken that role off Matip and all the rest of it. We've, Like I said, we've seen it over and over again at centre-back and we're very, very fortunate to have the players that we do in that role, in that area of the team now. And I guess this summer is kind of down to, like you say, whether he was told it's a two-year recuperation thing or whether he feels now he needs to go and be a first choice somewhere. I mean, if it wasn't Liverpool, if they weren't one of our rivals, if it wasn't the fact that I absolutely don't want him to go to them, with who's leaving Chelsea this season, he'd be so perfect for their right side he of the three. He he'd was. be absolutely nailed on. Perfect signing for them. Losing Rudy off one side and Aspilicueta one side and Christensen in the middle. They can build an entirely new defence and he would be absolutely perfect for that role. But he's not allowed to go there. No, he's not. No, he's not at all. Um, although, you know, they're, they're in they're in a sticky situation at the minute and if there was a, a Mason Mount for Joe Gomez swap, I could probably get myself on board with that. I have recently been thinking about how nice Reese James could be 
on the right of a midfield three, but his performance against Everton immediately ruled that out because it was an absolute disgrace. Um, just to give people a bit of PTSD, when you're enjoying Trent, Robbo, Costas, Virgil, Matip, Kanate, and Joe Gomez, just just have a bit of a think to the fact that in, in 2013-14, we finished second and the following players were defenders who played games for us. Glenn Johnson, Jose Enrique, Colo Toure, Ali Sissoko, Martin Kelly, Martin Skirtle, Brad Smith, Andre Wisdom, John Flanagan, and then, of course, the two who were suitable of, you know, of a, of a suitable level, Daniel Agger and Momo Sissoko, who, with respect, Momo would be the worst defender at the club. Now, I still think Agger would be, I think Agger would be unbelievable in this team. It would mean Virgil having to play the right side, but Daniel Agger could play in this team. Uh, but to to just highlight just how far we've come defensively uh, from that mess that conceded 50 league goals to the current team, which may be the best defence in, in world football, is um, is one of the hallmarks of what Jurgen Klopp has done. Um, on Gomez, just quickly, if he were... like, I think the only circumstances in which he leaves this summer is A, he asks to leave and says he wants to go somewhere and establish himself and, you know, get back in the England team and not lose any more seasons of his career because when we look at Joe's career, he really has had the worst luck of anybody. I mean, he joins Liverpool, he starts off really well playing left back and he tears his ACL. He plays seven games total that season. So he basically misses the whole season. The following season, he plays three games. So basically misses the whole season. Plays 31 games, 25 games, and 43 games in the next three seasons. The 18-19 season, that was when he broke his ankle and missed a bunch of time. Then last season, he played 12 games. So again, basically misses the whole season. He was out from November on. This season, he has played 20 times, but it's less than 1,000 minutes. So you're looking at Joe, who's been at the club now seven seasons, and he's lost four of them for one reason or another. And it's generally obviously been injuries. Now it's because of the quality alternatives that we have. I wouldn't blame him if he looked at that and thought, I want to go somewhere and play. I'm too good to sit on the bench. Even if Klopp trusts me and wants me around, I'm too good for this role. I'm too good not to be an every-game starter. And I could go and start for basically anyone. And he might look at, you know, Spurs rebuilding a defence and think, I'd look pretty good in the middle of that back three. Or Chelsea, like you said. Or, you know, he'll be looking around at Arsenal and thinking, well, I'm better than both of their centre-backs. I'm I'm better than both the lads West Ham have. I'm better than all the Wolves defenders. I need to be going somewhere and starting. And I, I think that's one circumstance. And the other would be if someone just offered us an enormous bag of money for him. I think if someone came in with 55, 60 million, I think we'd have to take it. I think you're just, you're obligated to take that kind of money for a player who's not going to be starting for you. And I don't think he, I don't think there is a path for him to start for us because I think 
when he's played this season at centre-back, it's always been the left-sided role. I think Klopp has made a decision that he's Virgil's sort of deputy and Matip and Ibu are the ones that play the right-sided role. And I think Ibu's probably here because he was told, give it a year, maybe two years, you're going to be first choice next to Van Dijk. So, you know, I could understand if he wanted to leave. And again, if we if we were offered a huge amount of money, I think we just have to take it. Might well do, to be honest. I guess the, the two mitigating factors against that would be one, which club is going to spend the money after he's missed the number of games that you've just mentioned, you know? I mean, some of those are completely incidental and you wouldn't, you know, they can't be repeated injuries like the one he got against Burnley when he was down by the far touchline trying to put a cross in. That's just, you know, that happens in the tackle. That's nothing to do with anything. But if it's like a proper two-year recovery period on this, I wonder how many clubs would be willing to outlay the amount which would almost force us into saying... We've probably got to accept that. Uh, the other side of the argument is if he goes to, I don't know, take your pick out, any Europa League sort of standard club or trying to get into the Champions League or anything like that, they're probably going to play 45-ish games a season, 45 to 50, depending on how far they go into the cup competitions. Now, even if he's first choice, you might say he might play, let's say, 40 to 45. So he's getting maybe double the games but is it going to be that that he wants or being part of something which is winning as often as Liverpool? Because there's nothing wrong with either one of those. Like, you know, he can, he can absolutely think that, all right, this season he's not played as many minutes as he wants, but if he continues and, and improves next season in terms of fitness and, and durability and all the rest of it, maybe that gets bumped up to sort of the two to two and a half thousand minutes mm. game time. Is that more what he wants if it's contributing to winning maybe two trophies next season? Or does he want to be playing more like the three and a half thousand to four thousand minutes, but not winning anything. You know, that's that's it, it may well depend on both of those are fine. They are absolutely. They are absolutely, but it may well depend on what happens the rest of this season. Because if he walks into the summer with two Premier League winners medals, two Champions League winners medals, a League Cup winners medal and an FA Cup winners medal, he might just think, Well I've won the lot. I've won it. This does, you know, I, I don't have anything left to prove. If I win nothing else for the rest of my career, I still have all my shiny medals. I don't want to be Wes Brown. I don't want to be John O'Shea. Yeah. Now, he's a better defender than John O'Shea ever was, but people forget how good Wes Brown was when he was a young defender. And Wes Brown was the future of England. And then all of a sudden, he was just a Man United squad player, and then he ends up at Sunderland. And at some point, Joe will leave. And does he want to leave and go to a, a good club or does he want to leave and go to a Sunderland will be his question. If he stays too long, he may end up at a Sunderland. Villa would be the club I would look at as the most obvious choice to spend a significant sum on him. Gerard loves him. Tried to get him on, on loan at Rangers uh, at the start of this season and obviously we weren't having any of it. They've got deep pockets, rich owners with deep pockets who are willing to spend. They're very ambitious. They're not going to have European football this season. But the reason they sacked Dean Smith is because it became obvious early on they weren't going to get European football this season. Their aim for next season will be European football and Steven Gerrard will be on notice that you've got to get European football next year and if you don't, 
you'll be at the door as well. So they're the one, and they did bid. They bid big for Basuma. They've been linked with Calvin Phillips, so they're obviously planning to have a good go at it this summer and, and spend on established quality as opposed to some of the gambles they've taken in the past. So they'd be the one I'd look at as the most obvious choice. And then the other one is Newcastle. Newcastle will have will have been very impressed by what they saw from Gomez at the weekend. He's very much an Eddie Howe type of player, that ball-playing defender. So they'd be the two clubs that I think would be the obvious choices to come in and spend big. And, and he might look at those and think, I can be. I could maybe be part of something, you know. With Newcastle, there's a lot of excitement around what they could become and who they might be and what money they'd spend. And as I've said to you before, I think Bruno Gomes is the only player there who could be part of a title-winning team. Joe Gomez has proven he can be part of a title-winning team, so maybe he'd look at it and think, "Well, I'll go there. I'll be one of their big pieces. I'll be potentially an option to be captain of that club in a year or two. So, you know, that would be one. And then obviously with Villa, they're trying to get back to where they have been in the past, trying to reestablish themselves as one of the top teams in England. And he might have a bit of an appeal from that angle with, you know, he's helped one club reestablish themselves. Now he could go and redo it at another. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, it's a big decision for quite a few players this summer. Um, we've spoken about them before. Ox tacky probably the guys who have got to sign new deals or not and Gomez is probably in there even though his contract is not the same situation it is definitely about game time and where he is in the rehab and all the rest of it so again hopefully the Jurgen Klopp signing contract consistency clarity of where we're going and all the rest of it it helps the the team mm. the squad as a whole stay together because there's no question he's such a good player and he deserves more minutes it's just about whether he can or not um one tiny little tangent just to bring this little bit to a close uh the player he obviously is trying to get in ahead of joel matip did you know his cousin is the former middlesbrough forward joseph desira job i did not there you go now you do <laughs> that's random fact of the day yeah um before we move on we'll, we'll leave joe there uh you mentioned ox and i remember in the first half of the season, we were talking about Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain and how, you know, in November, he'd already played more than he had the previous season. And he was an important part of the team up until late January. You know, he was starting against Palace, starting against Brentford. He was playing in the fifth round of the FA Cup then at the start of February. He played all the early rounds of the League Cup. He was in the in the squad for the final, though didn't didn't get in the squad for the second leg semi-final. But he's only been he's only played one game in the Premier League since the start of February. And three games in total. The two cup games at Norwich and Forest, and then the league game was Norwich. He's been on the bench a bit, but he hasn't even been in the squad of late. Yeah. Is that is that the, the, the biggest sign yet that Ox is going this summer, that he is just now out of the rotation and likely won't play again? Uh, I think, I mean, whether he'll play again, I think depends obviously on fitness of other players, but I think he's been the direct um, 
the player most directly hit by Cater, basically. Uh, if you look at their appearances and performance levels, even to an extent across the first half of the season, look in the Champions League, for example, Cater only played, I think, once from the start in the group stage in the Champions League, and Ox played all six group games. You know, whether he started or came off the bench, he was heavily involved in the Champions League group stage, but he's not appeared once in the knockouts at all. And Cater has played every single one of them either starting or off the bench. He's played a really prominent role, basically. Uh, in the Premier League, he's been basically rotated in with Henderson. Um, started both of them together at the weekend against Newcastle, but that was more to uh, rest Thiago and Fabinho than because we had to have those players in. But he has been basically either third or fourth for that midfield role. And then Henderson is third or fourth as well. And it kind of bumps everybody down. And when you've got Elliot come back to fitness, uh, he's not really played as much, but the, the timing of it obviously is is battling with Ox for a bench spot at best. And then you've still got Milner, who's always going to be involved as a sub, just because that's one of Klopp's options and one of Klopp's, uh, you know, go to people to do certain things within the team. So it's kind of circumstantial that it just happens to have coincided with, I think, Cater's best run of form and fitness. And also, yeah, the, the situation of the contract and probably one of them has to go and, he hasn't quite managed to find that form. I think he was good across some of the first parts of the season, mm. actively impressive in some of those roles. And he had a run of games there. I think it was like around the time of when we, I think it was just after we hit United for a few. And then he was playing like against, it was Arsenal. He had a pretty good game against and he played Southampton. I think he played the West Ham defeat as well, didn't he? So there was a good run where he was heavily involved and playing an important role. And like I say, the Champions League group stage, really, really heavily involved. But consistency is everything isn't it and we know that Ox hasn't quite been able to produce his best on a regular enough basis and while now I think that's absolutely normal because he needs rhythm and runs of games if he didn't manage to hit the heights earlier in the season when he was playing regularly starting and off the bench then it does kind of stand to reason that he sort of gets shunted aside when it gets to the business end and other people are performing. Yeah, I agree. Um, he did play in both of our Premier League defeats this season. He started both of them. The um, the Henderson-Oxlade-Chamberlain combination as number eights doesn't work because both of them want to go and play as number tens. Um, so, you know, it's just it's a bit unfortunate for Ox. But he did have some good performances this season. He's at uh, over 1,500 minutes for the season, which, look, is is a massive improvement on last season when he played 286 minutes for the entire season. Um, but, yeah, it, it does just appear that he is kind of victim of circumstances. And I don't know that his reaction to being subbed off at Forest will have done him any favours either. Yeah, I agree. Um, but, but I will say, if I was him, and I was objectively looking at it, I'd be furious that James Milner was ahead of me in the rotation, because there's nothing Milner does better than Ox, and Ox has been better than Milner across the course of the season. Yeah, but, but maybe what you've just said is a big part of it, isn't it? We know it's that, the Henderson well, factor. He no, no, not play just that. I mean, I mean, what you've just said about you know his reaction when he came off, we know that. Klopp places a huge, huge emphasis on you know team first and everybody pulling in the same direction and all the rest of it. I mean, think about uh, uh, Mamadou Saka, of course. You know, a couple mm. of 
instances right at the beginning that was the law laid down and everybody has towed that line and maybe i don't know whether it, it, there's any difference in oxley chamberlain's training sessions or anything like that but you gotta think that there's something obviously it's not just the fact that it's james milner he's older and therefore he has to play there is obviously stuff to it with Klopp. He picks based on some sort of merit even if we don't know every single part of what that is there is something there that obviously means oxley chamberlain has not been considered not even to be on the bench in the last four games it's not just about you know, Milner's ahead of him. He's just not there at the moment. So everybody's ahead of him. Yeah, it's funny. He's on the Champions League benches, but not on the Premier League benches. Just more uh, options he, there, I think. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And he hasn't he has not kicked a ball for us since that Forest game uh, on the twentieth of March. So you know, it, it maybe that's what it is. But he wouldn't be the first one who's had a bad reaction. To coming off, we've seen the captain do it. We've seen the vice captain do it. We've seen Sadio do it. We've seen Mo do it. So they've all had these reactions to been taken off, and yet he. Well, maybe that's not what it is. Maybe maybe it's not that, but it certainly gets blown up more when it's him, Mane, or Mo than the other two, um, for whatever reason. So it's just unfortunate for him, but I, I do think he'll be off in the summer. I think there'll be a lot of clubs will have interest in Ox. He's a, he's still a good player. Right he'll only be yeah. 29 years of age, I think, this summer. Uh, yeah, he turns 29 in August. He's, you know, an England international, 35 caps to his name, and could get back into the England squad if he was to go somewhere and play regularly at a good level. I think there'll be... I think there'll be quite a few clubs that would have would have a strong interest in bringing him in. His versatility as well is is outstanding. I mean, Ox can play basically everywhere bar centre-back and goalkeeper and do a job for you. So uh, he, he's one I'd have no doubt will have, will have strong suitors. And I think you mentioned Taki as well. I think he's another one that will be off this summer. Um, again, I just think he's he's too good to be just wasting his career as the sixth or seventh or eighth choice forward player. You know, Taki's a good player. He he may not be good enough to play for us on a regular basis, but he's certainly good enough to play in the Bundesliga for two-thirds of the team. He's good enough to play in France for most of the teams or Spain for two-thirds of the teams. So I think he'll have plenty of options as well. It just depends on what kind of fee we're asking for. In terms of, let's say, Newcastle going for a Europa League sort of spot this se- uh, next season, can I interest you in a Gimarish, Oxley chamberlain Joel Linton midfield triumvirate? I think it would work against some of the draws, but against some of the good teams, you might want to get a bit more defensive solidity in there. But certainly, I think... You know, you could... If you had a, a fourth midfielder who was, you know... a a responsible sitting ball winner who could shield that defense, you know, between him and those three, you could certainly work out a rotation that would, would win you more games than you'd lose. Uh, and then you still have, you know, the likes of Shelby and if he sticks around Longstaff and um, Isaac Hayden, if he's, if he's fit and, and stays, you know, You'd have a decent enough midfield rotation. Yeah, Newcastle would be a team that I could see having some interest. Um, I wonder again if if Villa might have some interest. They they like to play with aggressive number eights, and Ox certainly fits that bill. I'd also look at the likes of Brentford. 
who I think could do with a bit more drive from midfield. And if, if they're going to lose Ericsson, which is seemingly a, a, a strong possibility, um, putting Ox in a midfield with Janelt and Norgard could give them decent balance. I, I You know, some of the promoted clubs, Fulham, Fulham will have interest in a player like Ox. I think if Bournemouth come up, there could be interest there. Um, Forrest, he'd be a bit of an odd fit in how they play, but you never know. I think there'll be plenty of clubs. It may well be that they want to lowball us on an offer, but I, I think, to be honest, even if we value him at 15 million, I'd rather get 10 and let him go than keep him a year, not play him and lose him for free because it, you've also got to think of the guy's career. Yeah, I think there has to be probably an element of you know, refreshing of the squad as such, and we're, we're widely expecting ourselves to get a central mid, aren't we? So we're going to have to let a couple of them go anyway. So I think Ox is probably in that category quite firmly now. Yeah, definitely. I think I think he's the one who's most obvious to go from the midfield group. Um, if Milner is staying another year, as has been rumoured of late, then you wonder is maybe is a loan for Curtis Jones the best course of action with him? Because I think a lot of that will depend on who the incoming one is, what roles they can play. What role they play, yeah. yeah. Um, just, hopefully it's, we'll we'll, hopefully we'll it's do a whole podcast on options for midfield. We will, we will, and, um, and what, what to do with the players we have. Uh, right. We might as well just get wrapped up then. What is your expected Liverpool eleven for this game? The same one as started the first leg. Ali Trent. Did Matip start? Oh, Kanate started. Kanate, Virgil, Robbo, Brian, Fabinho, Thiago. Yep. And then the three boys up front. With Salamane and Diaz. Yeah. Yeah, I think given that Naby started and finished the game against Newcastle um, and Henderson was taken off, it is probably Henderson that starts. He had a decent game at the weekend, you know. Was, he he has just been better as a number a number eight a number six this year. I mean, most of his 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 best performance, his his one sort of eight out of ten performance for the season was against Everton and that was as a, as an eight that was the away leg uh but his his most of his best performances this year have been as a six but you know he he did all right against well he he, was, he wasn't great against Villarreal in the first leg but he did did create the opening goal to an extent uh so yeah maybe he he gets the run here i just wonder it is quite a short turnaround for him to start three games in a row in what is seven days, basically. Uh, but then maybe he sits out the Spurs game at the weekend. Um, yeah, that's fine. I, I think think we can back that. Obviously, you'd rather see Naby, but such is the way things go. Uh, prediction, then? Uh, I do think they'll score. I think, like I said, the atmospheres should be pretty intense. I believe they're planning a uh, lovely yellow submarine TIFO before the match to ramp up the atmosphere even more. Um, but if they try and attack us, I do expect that the front three that we start, whichever ones it is, 
should be able to carve open quite a few chances on the counter press. And then I expect that there'll be a good 50 minutes of the match in different spells where we would completely dominate. And again, you'd fancy us to score among the chances that we create there. They will have to be a little bit more on the front foot in terms of challenging and and stepping out and stopping us because they're obviously going to need to create some chances, counter-attacking themselves, maybe free kicks, set pieces, that kind of thing as well. But um, I'm still going to go for a win for Liverpool, actually, on the night, not just on aggregate. So I'll go 2-1. Yeah, I think 2-1's a fair shout. Um, not not to copy, so I'll go 3-1. Um, because I, I do think, you know, there, there'll still be caution in their game early on. Hmm. But I do wonder if they get a goal, might they get a little bit a little bit excited by the whole thing and start to Maybe. chase things a bit more? So you know, if they get the first goal, I think I think that ha- they could they could end up opening up and we could carve them apart. If we get the first goal, they're going to have to just open up and go full bore. Like if we score the first goal, they have to come and attack us, and then they're in big trouble. Then yeah, I think I mean, we will carve them apart. You have to remember that they, they don't lose that many at home. Like I said, they're a much much better side, so they haven't lost lost at home in any competition since November. But despite improvement it's the context of the game i think which matters most here is the fact that they can't you know hold in and and you know dominate part of the game if they want to and wait for their chance or go on the counter they, they can't really just afford to let the game drift you know they can't get to 60 70 minutes still at nil nil and think that that's okay in this situation because mm. scoring twice against liverpool at the best of times is, is pretty difficult scoring twice in 20 minutes might be near impossible you know so the context of the game, I think, comes into my thinking here for the result as much as Liverpool are better than Villarreal or anything like that, because you, you would expect Bayern Munich to be better than Villarreal. They lost 1-0. That was a first leg. Juventus drew mm. 1-1. That was a first leg. Real Madrid drew 0-0. They were already clear at the top at that point. It's the context of the game, I think, which matters as much as you know quality and tactics here. And there is no no better team on the planet right now, better at exploiting space and counter-attacking opportunities and people roving out of positions to try and be a bit more adventurous than Liverpool. Yeah, I completely agree. I do completely agree. Um, yeah, the last time they lost at home in the league, Barcelona beat them 3-1. That was that that was Barcelona under Koeman as well. So that was bad Barcelona. Um, and Man United and, beat them. And, and Man United had beaten them four days previous as well. The Villarreal um, one was just after Xavi joined, though. I think he joined for the Espanol game, which was just before the Villarreal. Oh, was it? Was yeah. it is he there that long? Wow, yeah. doesn't seem like that long. Um, yeah, they they lost at home to Manchester United in what was a must-win game. Mm. You know, because they were they'd had the iffy start, the the draw with Atalanta, where they really should have won the game. Um, they were two-one up and, and let the lead, lead slip. They lost to United at Old Trafford after they absolutely wiped the floor with United for the better part of of 80 minutes. Uh, It was 1-1. You thought they'd get the draw. Cristiano scored very late. Mm -hmm. They beat Young Boys twice, and that gave them a bit of hope. But they had to beat United because their last game was away to Atalanta, and uh, they they crapped the bed that day. They did go on and beat Atalanta, obviously, which is why they're here now. But that was sort of their last must-win home game in the Champions League, and they lost. Um, so, you know, like, their their home games against the better teams in 
La Liga haven't exactly been great either. You know, they they drew with uh, Athletic Bilbao, they drew at Real Madrid, they drew with uh, Atletico Madrid. They still have Sevilla and Real Sociedad at home. So I'm not really seeing... The, Real Betis is their best home win this season. Uh, a 2-0 home win back in October. So, yeah, they, they are much better at home, but at the same time in the bigger games against the bigger teams, they're not getting the results. And I don't expect them to get a result this weekend. Um, I think, or this this week, I, I think there's always going to be part of Unai Emery that just looks at, at any game against a good team and thinks, a draw is a good result here. If we can get a draw, <laughs> that, that'll look good on the CV. If we can get a draw here. So in his mind, he may well already have thought, if we can get a draw here, <laughs> we, we'll be in good shape. Because uh, the man has the ambition well, he has no real ambition. He he has ambition to go into the Europa League and win it. Do you know what? He might love the Conference League. Like he might look at that and think, "I could win five or six of them." Do you know? You know what? I was thinking about this before. I didn't say it at the time because you know we were talking about other things at the time. But if they finish level on points with uh, Athletic, Athletic finish ahead of them because it's head to head in La Liga mm. at the end of the season and. Uh, Villarreal, as as you just pointed out, drew at home with Athletic and they lost away. So they have to finish uh, seventh by points to get into the conference. And there's only one in it with a difficult run to come, like you say. So it is, this is not necessarily all or nothing on the second leg, but he has made it all or nothing. He has. Or, he's made it all or quite possibly nothing, I should say, because, of course, they could go on and beat Barca in the rest of them. Yeah, because, like you said, they, they some of them don't have anything left to play for. And maybe that plays into their favour the way we're seeing it in the Premier League at the minute. I mean, Barcelona are qualified for Champions League. Sevilla are very close to qualifying. And then it will come down to Atleti, Real Betis, and Sociedad could still sneak into Champions League. But I think it is Atleti or Real Betis for fourth. So, you know, Sevilla could be they could have their foot taken off the pedal. Barca probably will. We've already seen some of the Barca players make some comments along the lines of, well, we've got nothing left to play for, which doesn't really speak well of, you know, the mindset. It it, it still seems to be very much the privileged mindset that was there pre-Javi. Yeah, something Xavi's very like, unhappy about this. He's, he's yeah, he, told them it's utterly not okay. He's going to have to shake that out at the weekend. Uh, right, so you're going 2-1, I'm going 3-1. Um, Sandeep has two questions before we wrap. Would you take Conrad Lamer as a midfielder slash right-back cover? How much? Uh, what's Conrad Lamer's contract situation? I think his contract situation is quite short. Is he 2024? Uh, he's 2023. So... 2023, let's say 20 million? No. Too much? Yeah, way too much. If you're just bringing in someone to cover two roles, then you're looking at Costas value tops, like 12 to 15 million absolute max. Costas only covers one role. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, like the, the, the amount we paid for him to be a fullback, you know, Lehman's not going to play midfield for us, even if we were to sign him. There's, there's too many options there. He'd be the backup right back and. 
you know, he might get a cup game. Basically, he'd be... He's better than a lot of the midfielders we have. He's better than Ox. He's better than Milner. He's better than Curtis Jones. He's better than Harvey Elliott at this point. He's not going to start for us in midfield. He's not going to start for us, but I still think he'd get games in midfield. He's one of the, he's, he's the best presser in Europe. Yeah, I wouldn't be paying that much for him. Um, right, well, I, I would, so we'll disagree on that one. <laughs> um, and then he wants to... He, he's mentioned Darwin... Here's I'm going to ask it a different way. Do you think, now we've talked about this before and we're both in agreement, sign him to a new deal, run him into the ground for the next two to three years and then ship him back to Brazil in pieces if need be. But do you think there's a possibility Bobby goes? And if he does go, do we need a more physical number nine presence with Divock already going? Would someone like a Darwin Nunes be that profile of player, or would we would we be better off looking at maybe a more affordable version or a more affordable option like a an Ivan Tony for forty million? Um, I mean, I I think the only reason Firmino goes if he's got a really good offer that he wants to go and be first choice for, because like I said, I don't think that there's too many teams out there who would pay the money which Firmino is worth to us, if you know what I mean. Not how much he would be worth in, in market terms compared to, I'll take your pick of whatever number nine you want to talk about, because he's he's very, very different, isn't he? So I don't think that we would get value for Liverpool by selling him. I think keep him. But if he wanted to go and you know Klopp gives him an agreement to say, all right, fine, or whatever, uh, I would expect in that case, Mane gets a new deal and becomes our number nine. That simple. Yeah, I mean, it, I, it may well be that Sadio is going to be our nine anyway, even if Bobby stays. Um, but if Bobby goes, I, I still do think we would need... Uh, now, I wouldn't necessarily spend huge money on the position no. if we've got Mane and Jota to play through the middle. But I do still think having that more physical centre-forward type, who you know, like a Divock, like a Bobby, who can just give defenders a bit more of a of a tough time from a physical point of view. I know Sadio does, but Sadio tends to do stupid things then, like put his hands in people's faces or leave his studs into into places. Um, I, I might even, you know, someone like a Joe Pedro at Watford would be really interesting to me as a player to bring in and develop. I think he's got a huge talent. I think unless we're, we're specifically setting out to buy a number nine this this summer, I think Darwin's probably unlikely. I think yeah. Tony's unlikely. But as a Divock, Bobby type replacement, Joe Pedro's the one that really does stand out to me. With Watford going down, he may not be all that keen on on another season in the Championship. You know, he's probably not all that keen on another season at Watford, considering <laughs> he must have had fourteen managers since he joined. He's only been there for two and a half, three years. Oh, what yeah. an absolute mess of a club! Oh no, God. I can't even be asked to think about them. It's too much effort. Um, I think for someone like João Pedro, anyone that age profile is going to, again, depend on cost because I don't think I would be inclined to do the whole 40 million thing on someone who is a project. No, not for him. not going to play for two years, that kind of thing. Uh, and I can't see them going for that much less, to be perfectly honest. I think it would have to be, you know, someone like Taki, who the um, recruitment and analytics and physicists and statisticians at the club have sort of looked at a completely under the radar player and said, wow, I wonder how well this translates. And it would be kind of a, almost a gamble, you know, someone who could 
not really do too much like Taki hasn't ultimately done. He hasn't been able to do quite as much, but could have a few moments. And on the best case scenario, he would be like Origi has been basically, you know, what did we spend on Origi? 10 million was it initially? I yeah. Mean, as it turns out, bargain compared to what we've got from him. Um it would work very, very well over, let's say, a four-year period, something like that, even if they knew they were going to face a real, real battle to get first-team minutes. But if they were you know, a bit more physical and were maybe a spearheading number nine at times, or maybe someone who can play out on the right-hand side as well, you know, something who can, someone who can double up roles, maybe that's the way to go. But honestly, I don't see Firmino leaving anyway. I will cry for weeks if it happens. And there's just some rumours rumbling that he's not all that happy about the fact that he's now the fifth forward. So it might just be one to keep an eye on. Um, Stop getting Charles would be my advice then. Yeah, yeah, to be fair. But to be fair, he might just be the fifth forward anyway. Yeah, he like, might be. But he's, he's, not better, forward, he's, no, he's not no, better than the others. No, no, but fine. But the fifth forward at Liverpool is still going to play 3,500 minutes, 3,000 minutes this season, next season rather, if you're fit and available for them. It's not... Yeah. It's nobody's fault that you know Origi has to start one of their games randomly because Firmino's injured. That doesn't make him sixth choice all of a sudden. He's just injured. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, someone that can play on the right or through the middle, be that nine. Charles de Catelier would be that would be the one. Get him. Get him. Get him. Regardless of Bobby staying or going, just get him. He's really good. You wanted Kai. You didn't get Kai. Do you know what? I I actually gained more respect for Kai yesterday because he put that big. Galute Yerry Mina firmly on the floor. Um, I, I know he didn't have a good game, but I gained a bit of respect for him. We'll leave it there. Uh, anything you want to plug? Anything you've got coming up this week that people should be aware of? I don't know. We're right at the start of the week and it's bank holiday. My thinking has been minimal. Just look at these part-time journalists. This is this is what we what we're putting up with, folks. This is Excuse the me, demise of the demise of journalism in the modern day. If anyone out there wants to do a college thesis on the demise of journalism, just use him as a case study. Ah, oh, dear me. Look, me and Guy were ready to go at 9am this morning. There was only one person who delayed this recording. <laughs> you weren't ready to do anything at 9 o'clock this morning. I was ready for a cup uh, of tea. That's about it. Radio, we'll leave it there. Um, we'll talk to you all next time. Take care, boy. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.